As we come back to our text for today, be turning to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're bringing chapter 3 to a close today. And it will actually be not only the close of chapter 3, but it will also be a while before we're back in Hebrews. It'll be in the new year before we're back in Hebrews, Lord willing. And uh, we'll pick up at chapter 4, which will be quite easy because the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 are very parallel. And so it'll be a perfect way to go back and kind of review and launch new ground when we begin back. Uh, But if you've been here, this will be a bit of a review. We're not covering anything too new, but there will be an emphasis on the theme of unbelief and I guess contrasting that against faith today. And that's been at the background of what we've been talking about for a long time, but today it comes to the forefront, and we need to see that. And there's some other things said that we've been touching upon, but they come out stronger today in this text. And so if the Holy Spirit saw fit to include these last few verses in this chapter, we need to cover them, and they are important verses for us to consider. So we've been walking through Hebrews for a long time. There's different movements. We know that. We've got the exordium that opens the letter. Then the balance of chapter 1 is comparing Christ to the angels. We know that. It establishes he's greater than the angels. It goes through uh, understanding that, which leads right into chapter 2 and this uh, warning or exhortation not to neglect so great a salvation. If uh, those that neglected the old covenant fell under the judgment of God, how much more shall you if you neglect so great a salvation mediated by Christ, the Son of God? And so that begins there. And then, of course, uh, from there you go into the balance of chapter 2, which talks about Uh, really using Psalm 8 as a guide to why the Incarnation matters, how it was uh, important, in fact, essential in the working of God in terms of saving a people. And then you move from there into chapter 3. And as we move into chapter 3, there's this comparison between Christ and Moses. And we said we would expect that to be the case because the idea is comparing the mediators of the Old Covenant to the mediator solely of the New Covenant, that is Christ. And so Christ is greater than Moses. Now, again, we would recognize that, but it's important to see it worked out, that Moses was great, he was faithful, he was a a deliverer, he was a representative of God, he did all these great things, Christ did them greater. Moses, faithful, no question about that, Christ worthy of more glory. And so all this is established, and we looked at it, and the author used all of that to get back to the Exodus story, didn't he? And in doing that, he gives a warning. Don't forget the generation that knew Moses, that followed Moses, that were under Moses, if you will, serving, uh, if you will, Moses serving over them as the deliverer and, uh, if you will, mediator over this people. And yet, what's the story of that people? They didn't make it. They didn't make it. Now, this is important because if you're speaking to Jews, they revere Moses. In fact, we could argue that oftentimes... Even in the New Testament, there's almost an over-reverence of Moses. It's almost like he's not a man. He's like there's men and there's God and Moses is some level in between. And this book argues very much against that, doesn't it? The letter to the Hebrews argues very much that Moses is a man. He should be recognized as a man, a great man, a faithful man, someone God used in a mighty way, but a man. A man. And yet, he faithfully led the people out and toward the promised land, and yet all those who were under him and saw the things that God did, did not make it. Now, why is that? Again, it can't be, you're not going to argue it's Moses' fault. 
That's really the point here. No Jew is going to say, oh, well, Moses did something wrong. But even if that was the answer, Christ is greater than Moses. But we're going to find out today for sure what the answer is. I think we've been looking at it along the way. You're familiar with it, but we're going to see exactly what it is. And so this author goes to Psalm 95 to make this point. David, in his day, wrote this wonderful call to worship for the people of Israel and then brings into that call to worship these words. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the days of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, he uses that word as a warning to, as it was to uh, David's generation, to a warning to his generation. And it serves in this capacity, in this chapter that we're reading as a warning to us today. It's a warning to all people throughout all time. As we said, that today, we had a whole sermon on this, is the today of the day of grace, right? Today is always that today, as long as God's grace is available. And so again, we want to recognize uh, that this is a warning to this author's generation, but it's a warning to us. Be careful, he's saying. In light of witnessing the miraculous working of God, the deliverance of God, of being present in the hearing of the Word of God, that somehow you fail to make it to the promise. Now, We've been talking for a long time about how to understand this, haven't we? And we're going to try to bring all that together today in these last few verses as we will, uh, as we will leave Hebrews for a short time and come back in a couple of months. But we come to these verses. And it begins here with, For who having heard rebelled? A question, who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those uh, with those who had sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now as we look at this text, I want us to look at two points today. First of all, an inexcusable generation. An inexcusable generation. And second of all, a deadly root. And so as we do that, we want to think about this text and how we need to think about it, I believe, today. There is a warning, I believe, for us today that we need to recognize in this text. So let us begin where the text begins. The very first word of our text for today is for. Now we've seen this over and over and over again, haven't we? This word in the Greek, gar, which is a word that means for or because, it ties what is here to what has come before. Now, oftentimes in these uh, books that are laying out an argument, they come up often. Something is said for something else that's said. For something else that's said. The author does this quite frequently. And if you follow it, you'll notice this text then points back based on what it's saying here to what it's just said. Well, what is it just said? Well, if you looked at that, you would notice that in verse 14, there's another for or gar. And it ties back all the way to verse 12. All the way back to verse 12. And so what does it say? The larger passage says that we need to be careful. We need to beware. We need to to watch that we don't find in ourselves an evil heart of unbelief. 
Well, how would we recognize it? Well, he says you would depart from the living God. You would leave the grace of God. You would leave the revelation of God that is in Jesus Christ. You would walk away. That's how you would know you have an evil heart of unbelief. What are we to do? Verse 13, exhort ourselves, exhort one another daily while it is still called today. We've talked about the significance of that today reference. Why do we need to do that? Because if we don't, there's a chance that any one of us could be hardened through deceitfulness of sin. We spoke at the time about deceitfulness of sin. Um, I heard an interesting uh, thing yesterday, a quotation from Thomas Brooks, in which it mentioned that sin, the deceitfulness of sin, is very much like a fisherman's hook. The hook in the water will not draw the fish, will it? But you put on that hook something the fish wants, and you can lure it to its end. In the same way, this speaks of the deceitfulness of sin, in that it, it's not the end that we're wanting, it's a thing that unfortunately brings us to our own doom, and that's exactly what it's talking about here, the, the thing that would pull us away to our own destruction. Well, why do we need to be careful about this? Because, for, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. How can we know we belong to Christ? Our faith doesn't disappear. What, uh, what looks to be our faith doesn't disappear. We are as much committed and trusting in Christ tomorrow as we were today, if not more so, right? We, our faith should increase, and we'll come back to this in a moment. But again, if our confidence wanes, if we slip away, fall away, it's evidence that we are not partakers of Christ. We've looked at this. This is the very things we've been looking at, but you need to see how it stacks together. The reason we need to be careful and not be hardened through deceitfulness of sin is because it might reveal in us that we're not partakers of Christ. That we slip away as those did in the wilderness. Now, we need to be mindful of this because of the warning given to us in the Psalms. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Warning, do not be like those in the wilderness. They heard the Word of God, the revelation of God. They saw the wonders and the workings of God, and yet they did not make it. Their hearts were hardened. Now we come to today's four. Why do we need to hear this? For who, having heard, rebelled? Who was it? Who was it that, having heard, rebelled? Was it not those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Do you see the, the point the author's getting at here? Wasn't it the very people who saw this miraculous deliverance of God? It wasn't a generation later. It wasn't two generations later. They weren't merely hearing of these things. They witnessed these things. They participated in these things. They were the ones that were led out of Egypt. They were the ones that saw the mighty works of God as, uh, as Moses stood before Pharaoh. And these plagues were wrought on the land. They saw these things. They couldn't explain them any more than Pharaoh could. Or Jonas and Jambres could. No one could explain them other than this is a powerful working of Almighty God. They witnessed it. They saw the most powerful nation on earth give them up. Go. Leave. In fact, we'll pay you to leave. Take gold. Take jewels. Just leave us. They saw a mighty Pharaoh come after them. And they saw God deliver them in the most amazing way. A way spoken of throughout the history of faith looking back to God's mighty arm and how He delivered them at the Red Sea and provided for their sustenance through the wilderness, they saw all these things. 
They were there at the mount when they saw all the visible presences, representations, if you will, of God's presence upon the mountain. They saw all these things. They heard all these things. They participated in all these things. So it's not a generation that simply heard about it. It's a generation that experienced it. And this is the generation that he says, having heard, rebelled. Now again, do you see how beautiful and simple this tie back to, thir- to 15 excuse, excuse me, is? Today, if you hear his voice, they heard his voice. If you hear his voice, do not follow their example. For it was those who came out led by Moses who didn't make it. Those who experienced all these things, witnessed all these things, they are the ones who did not make it. Now, if we were to uh, continue with that, how does that tie into this generation? The author says, and we've looked at this before, is this not a generation that also saw the miraculous deliverance of God? Many of you came out of the synagogue. You declared that you recognized Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Deliverer. You claimed to be freed from the shackles of sin and death in Christ Jesus. You claimed that you participated in that, that you are a partaker of Christ. You heard the preaching of the gospel. You heard the voice of God through His Word proclaimed. And you heard God testify to it too. With signs and wonders and workings of power, you witnessed the same things that generation did. So when you say, as you inevitably will, we don't have it as good as they did in the wilderness that came out of Egypt, how could they rebel? He says, how can you rebel? You've gotten more than they had. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But again, do you recognize, he's saying, that you are a people who have claimed to have experienced the presence of God and now you are talking about walking away, rebelling against the living God, rebelling against Him. Have you read how the story ends? Now that means this is a generation, this author is saying, without excuse. Just as the generation of the wilderness was a generation without excuse, so too is this a generation without excuse. Now, we need to park here for one second and say, all men are without excuse. Right? Romans 1 tells us that even the pagans are without excuse. Does it not? For they are without excuse. They have suppressed the, rep- the glory of God. They have suppressed it in unrighteousness. And, it, and Paul says in chapter 1, speaking of pagans, they are without excuse. Well, if they are without excuse, then certainly these people are without excuse. They saw all these blessings that God had given to His people Israel as He led them out of the wilderness. So again, if Paul can say of pagans uh, in chapter 1 of Romans that they are without excuse before holy and righteous God, that they cannot claim that it would be unfair to bring them under judgment, then how can the people in the wilderness claim such a thing? They are a people without excuse. But here's the thing. The author says the same is said of you. Because you have received everything that they did in the wilderness generation. And so much more. They didn't have the prophets. They didn't have the teachings of Christ. They didn't have all this revelation that has been received since then. Now to say that uh, all are equally without excuse does not mean that all are equally, so this is, I'm trying to think of how to word this, all are without excuse 
But in one sense, all are not equally without excuse. Does that make sense? Some have been given more than others. And the Bible sets this principle up that to whom much is given, much is expected, much is required. Matthew 10, which we were just looking at on Sunday evenings. We just concluded that chapter a few weeks back. Jesus sends out His disciples to the lost sheep of Israel. And He gives them instructions on what to do if they are not received. He says, knock the dust off your feet and move on. For it would be better, He says, for Sodom and Gomorrah than those towns on the day of judgment. Now we talked about at the time, how do we understand that except to say they've been given more than Sodom and Gomorrah has been given. And therefore they'll be high, held to a higher account. The truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, the more we've received, the more is expected. It's one of the reasons in the Scriptures that we have things like be careful about being a teacher, right? You're held to a higher standard. If you claim to know enough to teach others, then you can't claim you didn't know when you stand before God. If I walk away, it's not the same as somebody who heard the gospel for the first time walking away. God has blessed me with being able to teach and preach His Word for nearly two decades 16, 17 years, I think, at this point. I can't claim to not know. Now, either I'm a liar in saying that, or I've been negligent with the Word of God, which has been in my hands this whole time. And so again, we need to recognize that this is a serious warning to a generation that has received the blessings of so much revelation. Much is given to them. What excuse will they have if they do not Uh, follow through what excuse will they have they didn't know they didn't know about jesus or he just wasn't comfortable enough it wasn't going to be easy if i continued down this path my friends what's the point of all this just as the generation in the wilderness heard the voice of god and turned away what will be said of you what excuse can be offered for you you've heard the word of god you've received more than they have You've heard the gospel. You've seen the mighty works of God. If you rebel against God by turning to Christ, what excuse will you have? And that brings us to our second point that's in this text, an evil root. Because key to all this argument is the deceitfulness of sin. We've been speaking about that uh, over the course of this chapter. And even this morning, I've already mentioned what Thomas Brooks said. And it's important to think about. The sin is complex. There's an entire division of theology, right? Hamartiology, it's the study of sin. And it's a a complex thing to wrestle with. What is sin? Sin is a force. Uh, We've talked about how John Owen talks about that, but it's many things. It's complex. It's a manifestation of unbelief, this author says. That doesn't contradict the other definitions. It has all these definitions. Sin is missing the mark. It's rebelling against God. It's all sorts of ways to think of it, but it This author wants you to think about it in this way. It is a manifestation of unbelief. A manifestation of unbelief. He says, who was the generation that rebelled? If you look at that text again, who was the generation that rebelled? Was it not those who came out under Moses? Well, who was it that God was angry with for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned? I want you to think about that. Those are parallel statements, aren't they? He's trying to draw a parallel there. Who was it who rebelled against God? Who was it who, with whom God was angry? Those who were let out under Moses, those who sinned. There's a connection here, he's saying, between rebellion and sin. In fact, all sin is rebellion against the glory and majesty of God. Right? God is the rightful divine ruler of all the universe, of all created things, of everything. 
And so to sin against him is to rebel against his rightful rule and reign. And so again, it's making that point here. It's the same people whose corpses fell in the wilderness. That is not pleasant language, is it? It's not the language of uh, the death of believers, how that is spoken of. It is as if they just fell in the wilderness and died there, were left there in the wilderness. Again, it's trying to bring up a stark picture in your mind. And so again, it's this generation that sinned continually. Now, we say sin continually. Where did you get that from? From the Scriptures. <laughs> I mean, just read the, the account of the wilderness days and you will see it. It's also the verdict of God declared on them in Numbers 14, 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. How long will I bear with these people, he says. That's not the idea of a single instance, is it? But continual over and over again. Psalm 95, 10, which we've looked at throughout the course of this chapter, declares, For 40 years I was grieved with that generation. Not once in 40 years, not five times in 40 years. For 40 years I was grieved with this generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. Deuteronomy 32 says, And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. Children in whom is no faith. So all of these texts testify that sin is an evidence of rebellion and a lack of faith. You see it in the fact that they are disobedient. They rebel against God over and over again. And you can see that because if you look at the four verses we're looking at today, they're each making a statement about these people. And if you look at it, statement number one, verse 16, there are people who have rebelled against God, rebelled against God. Second of all, there are people who sinned and fell dead in the desert. The third verse, 18, that we're looking at says what? They are a generation who did not obey, did not obey. And verse 19 says that they could not enter because they were a generation of unbelief. Notice those parallel statements, rebellion, sin, disobedience, unbelief. It's tying these things together. So one of the reasons that we should never treat sin lightly is this author is warning you, the scriptures are warning you that it's a manifestation of unbelief. It can be seen that way and needs to be seen that way. Sin should not be treated lightly. If you go back to verse 12, there's a serious warning there about sin that it might reveal in you an evil heart of unbelief. No matter what you might say about yourself, it may reveal an evil heart of unbelief. Now, all that is here in the Word of God. We cannot dismiss it. But we also need to be careful because if you think this is preaching sinless perfection, you're also missing the point. You're missing the point. This is not claiming that we are going to be people who never falter or stumble or sin. That's not the point. That's not the point at all. But what we need to recognize is that we are sinners saved by God's grace, but in that we are called to follow and obey Christ. We are saved by a grace that transforms us and draws us away from disobedience toward obedience. Maybe not perfectly, maybe not quickly, but it does draw us that direction. In fact, if you think about the things that are given here, rebellion, sin, disobedience, and unbelief, those are the things that we're saved out of, not saved into. Now again, we are simultaneously sinners and righteous, as Luther put it, 
And that is true, but again, if we are a people who are remaining steadfast in our rebellion, sin, disobedience, etc., then that is an evidence that we are not a regenerated people. That is the point that's being made here. If you are a people who can walk away, who can disobey God constantly, be like the generation in the wilderness who rebelled against God, sinned against God, disobeyed God, all these things, then we've got some questions about you. We should be a people who are battling sin, not embracing it. Battling sin, not embracing it. The Scriptures tell us that. Be mortifying sin in the flesh. We're going to be moving into obedience, not disobedience. Faithful servants, not rebels. Again, I would ask you where the picture in the Bible is of moving into rebellion against God. It doesn't even make sense. So again, you see all these pictures. Now, if you're in a difficult battle against sin, and this concerns you because you hear this wording and you think there's a parallel between sin and disobedience and being outside the promise of God, and that concerns you, that's good that it concerns you. It's meant to concern you. It's meant to motivate you in your discipleship, in your uh, sanctification. But that isn't what's being spoken of here. This is not a generation in the wilderness that was striving to obey God. That's the entire point he's making. This is a generation that strove to disobey God, that rebelled against him at every turn. This is not a story of imperfect discipleship or obedience or sanctification. This is a story of no attempt at sanctification, no attempt at obedience or discipleship. This is a story of a people who were rebels against God. Now, that's just the reality of it. As we read the text, that's what God Himself declared. He said, these are a people who do not know my ways. These are a people who have rebelled against me at every turn, a perverse generation, a rebellious generation. These are a people who are not my people. And therefore, they shall not enter the reward that is reserved for my people. They shall not enter my rest. Now, pretty easy to think about this, isn't it? This picture of rest pops up through the Scriptures. It's a promise of entering into the rest that God has. For the people of Israel, uh, a, a physical manifestation of that was the promised land, right? A land that was theirs. And we could go back even to our discussion of angels and how uh, the, the nations of the earth were drawn up and apportioned by the number of the sons of God. But one particular nation was God's inheritance. One particular nation. This was to be that land and that nation, that people that belonged to God. It was to be a, a land of blessing. A land that if they were an obedient people would be a restful nation. Blessed by God. We can see that again when, in the days of David when for a time it says that he was given rest from all his enemies. There was a brief time when Jerusalem was inhabited and the, the kingdom was united and the Ark of the Covenant was brought uh, to Jerusalem, that there was no antagonism even from the neighboring nations. And they lived in peace and they flourished. And everything uh, was kind of this picture of rest that we're given here uh, in Hebrews. But even that is not the ultimate rest, is it? That's just a shadow, if you will, as this book is full of shadows and foretastes of the glory that's coming. That land of rest pictures the promise of rest given to the people of God eternally. A divine promise of rest to the people of God eternally. And this author says, just as that promise was 
held out there for the generation that left Egypt. So there is a promised rest still held out for us. And so be careful. Be careful that you, having looked to have been on the way there, end up short of it. End up short of it. Those who rebelled against God's deliverer, Moses, died in the desert. They didn't just rebel against Moses, they rebelled against God. That's the very thing that was said as we looked back in those verses in the the five books of Moses. They died in the desert short of rest. Well, if that's the case of those that rebelled against God's servant, what will be the fate of those who rebel against God's son? My friends, this is important for us to think about. And so I want to close by making one final point. We've seen how this applies to the wilderness generation. I think we can see pretty easily how this applies to the Hebrews generation. There's a warning there. You've, you've declared your faith in Christ. You've made this declaration, this profession of faith. I think the author is saying we want to see if you have possession of faith. He's saying, uh, will you stay committed to Christ, faithful to Christ? That would be the evidence of the Holy Spirit having renewed and worked in your heart. But here's the thing. What's the application for us? God has given us this letter in our Bibles for us to read and to consider. What's the purpose for us? Well, my friends, I think if you think about it for a moment, uh, there is a parallel today. Because we have many people today who proclaim participation with the people of God. There are many people who say, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm one who, who loves Jesus. I, I trust in Jesus. They say this. But my friends, I think this text would lead us to question what that looks like. What does it look like to believe and trust in Christ? Because with many people today who say, I love God, the problem is they rebel against everything He's revealed. Everything that He's revealed. You can think about it all the time. They say they love Jesus dearly, they just need to reject certain things that he said. Certain things they don't like or are not comfortable with. They love God dearly if they can reframe him in more comfortable terms. They love the Bible so long as they can dismiss the parts that don't fit with the modern times. Or they can give us a a measure by which we can decide which parts of the Bible we should listen to and which we should reject. Now, my friends, we can do this explicitly by saying, well, you know, that was written 2,000 years ago. Can't take that seriously. But there's another way we can do it more subtly, isn't there? We can just ignore it. Not preach it. Not proclaim it. Just skip it over and never talk about it. And that is happening in many of our churches today where we decide what parts of the Bible have authority to be preached and taught. We need to recognize that. They claim they love the Bible, but they don't live by it. They claim to have a joy in God as long as they don't have to actually obey Him. They love the Word. They're just embarrassed by the parts that aren't socially acceptable today. And so, you know, we often criticize Thomas Jefferson. I think about this a lot because he actually went through and just cut out the parts of the Bible he didn't like, didn't he? He He cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't think were realistic or believable. So that included like the miracles of Jesus, things like that. He he cut them out and he re-glued together his Bible. I think sewed it actually, sewn it together. But we criticize that. But if we're just ignoring those same parts of the Bible, what more is it benefiting us than it did him? 
if we're not reading it and, and thinking about it and being shaped by it and conforming ourselves to it by the power of the Spirit, what more good is it doing us than it did him after he cut it out of the Bible? And so we need to recognize that it's important that we think about these things. Because we live in a generation that says they love God so long as they can love and embrace what he declares he hates. And that's going on today. We can't make any mistake about it. That is going on today. And so, my friends, again, how is that any different than the generation in the wilderness? That says, oh, we're a people of God. Yes, he let us out, except we hate everything he's doing. We hate the leadership he gave us. We hate the way he's feeding us. It's never good enough. We hate that we don't have water as often as we want. We hate the way we're called to worship. Give us another way. Give us an idol that we can worship. We hate everything he's doing. But we love him. We love him. We rebel against everything he's commanded, but man, oh man, will tell you we love him. This author says that their sin and rebellion and disobedience revealed their evil heart of unbelief. My friends, that is a difficult message. A difficult message. We are justified by faith alone. We hold to that truth. That is what the scriptures teach. But my friends, those who are justified by faith and transformed by the Holy Spirit will not be a people who are openly, constantly rebelling against God, questioning everything that He's commanded, and basically saying, I'll pick and choose. Because at the end of the day, that means you're God, does it not? If I sit in authority over His Word, that means that I am God. He is not God. And my friends, that is idolatry. It's the very thing Paul is speaking of uh, in chapter 1 of Romans. They don't want to give God glory, so they just create a God in His place. When we say, well, I love God, but I don't believe whatever. Quote your scripture. My friends, go back and read Romans 1 and see how you're participating in the very thing Paul warns there. And so we need to recognize as we think about this, there's a warning here that we are not to be those who rebel. Not those who rebel. And again, if you go back and look at it, Is it wrong to claim this? Is it wrong to say that a people who claim to be amongst the people of God are actually rebels against God? It's not. God himself declared it. Look again. Think about Psalm 95. The evidence of this people, he says, is that they constantly rebel against him. They do not know his ways. They are a perverse people. That's what Deuteronomy says. A perverse people who have no faith. So this text offers a warning to us. And my friends, if we left this chapter without... Feeling that warning, we've missed the point of it. A warning to us. You are like the people in the wilderness. If, if you're rebelling against God, trying to overthrow His majesty, living out your own will instead of trying to be conformed to His will by the power of the Spirit, this is a serious warning to us. They died short of the promise. They had every advantage. They had the word the demonstration of God's power. They were amongst the people of God. And yet this author can say, all those who came out of Egypt didn't make it. Now we know two in that generation did make it. But he's saying it's as if no one from that generation made it. Only Joshua and Caleb, who maybe this author is intending to say, really weren't a part of that generation because they were nothing like them. But whatever the case, my friends, there's a warning here. You can be close to the Word of God. 
You can sit amongst the people of God. You can seem to share in the visible uh, benefits and blessings that befall the people of God and yet never be amongst the people of God. And though you seem to be on the way to the land of promise, on the way to the promised rest, you do not enter. And this author says, beware. Beware that happening. Beware that happening. Because my friends, there's a tragedy, a travesty, if you will, in being so close and not hearing the call. Now, again, I want to bring it back here as we close this up. Very importantly. Verse 19 says it's all because of unbelief. This author, I've tried to establish this, I pray that I have, does not see these as unbelievers. He is betting on the fact that they are brothers. He calls them holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, over and over, brothers, brothers, brothers. But there's a warning here. I think you're a brother. But if you persist in the direction you're going, you will show me that I'm wrong. And you will end up dying in the wilderness. As he says here, corpses falling in the wilderness, never making it to the land of promise. My friends, this is a warning to people proclaiming a profession of faith in Christ. Make sure you have possession of that faith. Make sure that you take this seriously because the faithless die outside the promise. It's the just who live by faith.